Welcome to the Dwelling Place Church audio podcast. Thank you so much for tuning in to this week's message. We pray God speaks to you today through this message and through His Word. For more information about our church, be sure to visit us on the web at dwellingplacemovement.org. Now, it's time to listen to this week's message. If you have a Bible today, go with me to the book of Romans. I would invite you to turn with me to the book of Romans. If you have a, a, a Bible, that would be amazing. Call me old school or what. I love the cards. I love screens. I love cell phones. I love version apps. But there's something so powerful about hearing pages turn. I don't know what it is. But I love hearing pages turn. There you go. That's great right there. And not only that, but I, I love to see Bibles that are marked um, as the saints begin to engage God in the Word. But I want to go to Romans chapter 6 as we continue through this series, chapter 2. We're going to read today in our hearing verses 6 through 23. That's going to be the, the basis of the text at which I'm going to preach from. But before we do that, I want to give you some context of what's happened before verse 6. So Romans chapter 6 opens up with a, a pretty amazing statement. We've learned very quickly that Paul is trying to establish the point that if you are a true believer in Jesus, you're a true follower of Christ, you can't continually... Um, willfully and habitually pursue sin. Why? Because as a true believer in Jesus Christ, who has turned over control of your life to Jesus, when Christ comes in, he breaks the power of sin over you by placing within the center of your heart the power of resurrection. Well, when God puts the power of resurrection on the inside of your life, thus he comes to conclusion that if you still willing or willfully pursue sin and you find yourself deliberately pursuing sin, It means, as Paul comes to the conclusion, that you've never really let Christ take control. Because when he comes in to take control, he changes you permanently. It is called the born-again experience. You are fused with the Lord. Your spirit becomes one with Jesus. Now, many of us, when we hear the phrase, come to know Jesus, we come to the saving knowledge of Jesus, we get into that journey, we begin that journey, and we all of a sudden come to the crossroads that the Apostle Paul finds. Finds himself at. Paul realizes even though you can't continually pursue sin, he makes the admission, he realizes that the experience of every believer, including himself, in fact, he would say, especially myself in Romans chapter 7, that my experience is a brutal struggle against sin. That the experience of every believer, once you've crossed the starting line, is a brutal struggle. And it is brutal. It is a bloody fight. It is a struggle against sin. Over the next couple of chapters, what the Apostle Paul will do is he's going to talk about, even though I am an apostle, I'm still in a constant fight between what I know I want to do and what I ought to do, and yet the sinful body, my sinful body that is pulling me to do something else. In this chapter, chapter 6, he begins to ask the question that every follower of Jesus asks at some point. It's the the question I want to propose to you today as being a question of chapter 2. And that is this question. If resurrection power actually came into me, why in the world do I still struggle so much with sin? 
If, if resurrection power has made me new, why in the world am I still stingy? Why in the world am I not more naturally, or naturally generous? Why in the world am I in a place where my heart feels so stubborn sometimes? Where my life doesn't want to come under submission to God's call and God's plan? Why do I lack the courage to follow my convictions? Why when I get down to pray does my mind wonder? Why do I have an ADD prayer life? Why can I not pay attention to the sermon on a Sunday morning? Why is my mind wandering during worship? Why is this so difficult? And he asked the question, how can I change? How can I change? How can change really take place in my life? Now, notice Paul here is addressing his counsel to very sincere Christians. Don't think this is JV Christians. Don't think that this is, you know, like these are real deal people. Look at verse uh, 17 with me. He said, you obeyed from the heart the pattern of teaching. You obeyed from the heart the pattern of teaching. These are not JV Christians. These are real Christians, real deal Christians who, as we would say, have gone through divine design for discipleship. I mean, they've gone through growth phases. They've received a, an elementary understanding of the principle of Jesus. They've obeyed. These are people that didn't just hear it. These are people that obeyed the pattern of teaching. These are people that have obeyed what they've received. And yet he's still addressing them as people who are experiencing defeat. Y'all, I don't know. Let me just say, I want to tell you up front. I find these chapters so very encouraging. In fact, they might be the most encouraging in the whole Bible. Why are they so encouraging? I don't know about you, but do you as a Christian ever find yourself frustrated at the lack of progress that seems to happen in your Christian life? Have you ever felt so frustrated that you're not moving at the pace that you thought you should move or the pace that you thought was promised by God for you? You're wondering why these temptations still attract you. Why do you still find yourself attracted to this junk? Why in the world do you find yourself still kind of moving as a magnetism to this sin in your life? Why don't you naturally love God more? Why are you not more naturally generous? Why are you not more courageous? Why, why, why? You ever wonder that about yourself? I wonder that about you. No, I'm just kidding. I wonder that about me. I wonder that about me. I really wonder that about me. Chapter 6 and 7, particularly chapter 7, are Paul at his most vulnerable. I would say it's his most vulnerable in all of his epistles. What he reveals about himself may surprise you, but let me tell you what it will do. It will definitely encourage you. Listen, church, these chapters are so crucial in understanding the Christian life. I, I was thinking about it this week. I might throw the challenge onto my children and, I don't know, really put a real challenge on them if they'll memorize this entire chapter, chapter 6, $100, maybe $200, because if they can get these verses internalized, there's no end to what God can do in terms of transformation. They're so crucial and what it means to be transformed. Not just come to know Jesus, but to actually be transformed and to say no to sin and be alive to God in Christ Jesus. In chapter 6, what Paul does is he lays out his theology for how to change. Let me start with how he says change begins. Change begins by believing and embracing at your core the new identity that God has given you. If you want to start with true change, you're going to have to embrace the identity that God has bestowed upon you, the identity he's given you as a free gift. And in preaching on this chapter, Tony Evans, one of my favorite preachers, he tells the story of a guy who visited his therapist and he goes into his therapist and he said, I need some help, man. I need some help changing my diet. And the nutritionist said, okay, what's the problem? He said, when I go to the grocery store, I go and every time I go, I find myself wanting to eat dog food. He said, I walk through the aisles and I, I find myself like a magnet drawn to the dog food aisle and I'll go in the dog food aisle and I 
I look at the pictures of little puppies, and I'm just like, I'm just salivating, looking at those little puppies, and I'm wanting so bad to eat this dog food, and I'm thinking about it, and I want to play around them. And, and he said, before long, I just find myself ripping open one of these bags and eating a scoop of, of dog food. He said, sometimes I get so excited, I start barking, and I start howling there right in the middle of the aisle. Sometimes I'll let the people come by, and I'll roll over on my back, and I'll let them scratch my belly. He said, he said, well, dude, that sounds like you really got a problem. I mean, this is, that's a big issue for you. He said, how long have you been like this? And he said, ever since I was a puppy. <laughs> now, y'all, I know I can't do it justice. You had to be there. When Tony Evans told this joke, he, he was hilarious. I know I'm not hilarious, okay? So maybe I'll retire this joke in the second gathering. But, but, but what Tony Evans says is there's some things that require deeper movement than behavior modification. It comes about by changing your identity. It comes about by re receiving a new identity that God has given you. This is what Paul's saying. Paul's saying that change begins with how you see yourself. Change begins with how you see yourself. Let's look at verse 11. He says, likewise, you also, he says, reckon yourselves dead to sin. Reckon yourselves to be dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus our Lord. The word reckon there is the Greek word logizomai. Logizomai literally means, some translations call it count. Some translations call it consider, but I prefer the word reckon. You say, Craig, I've never seen this word before. Oh yeah, you have. Multiple times in scripture. If you read Romans chapter 4, this is where he talks very clearly that this is not like reckon like us southerners use, right? Like, well, I reckon it's going to rain later. That's not the kind of reckon we're talking about. It's an accounting term. And this accounting term means that you look at one thing and you consider it to be something else. So you look at this reality and you consider it to be this reality. I've heard it described like a, a wild card in, in poker. Okay, you take something like a joker and you say, okay, for the rest of this hand, this joker is going to count as an ace. And for the record, I don't play poker the only card games I play are Bible charades and the left behind edition of Uno. Okay, so don't send me, don't send me an email. In fact, I love cards. Actually, I can show you a couple tricks after the gathering if you so desire. But but notice this is this is like reckoning. This is counting yourself. Now, if you remember in Romans chapter four, Paul uses this word logizomai to talk about how God, watch this, credits righteousness to you. He reckons righteousness based upon your repentance and faith in Christ. So God reckons you. In other words, when we claim God as our sin bearer, when we rest our faith in him, here it is, God credits righteousness to us or God logizomize, God counts, God reckons our faith as righteousness. Listen, it's not that our faith is righteousness. It's that God uses the means of faith to insert into to our life, Christ righteousness. It's not that our faith is righteousness. It's not that our faith is some righteous act. It's that our faith is the merit of the means by which God's eternal righteousness, God's and Christ's righteousness performed for us through his amazing resume would be given to our account. Well, now Paul gets to Romans 6 and he says, let's flip the script. You already were one who was reckoned, so now let's let you reckon. So God reckoned righteousness to your account now you want transformation? You're going to have to reckon something. You're going to have to count something. And he says we are to count ourselves. We are to reckon ourselves. He said dead to sin. We are to reckon ourselves dead to sin. And when we do what God says is God will infuse new life into you. 
When you recognize God has reckoned you and your faith as righteousness, now you reckon that God already did do what he said he did, which has made you dead to sin. And when you reckon and count yourself dead to sin, God, by the means of faith, will insert resurrection power in you. This is how we change. This is how we are transformed. You see, here, let me say it this way. Just as faith was the means by which we receive justification, so continued faith is the means by which God or we access the power of sanctification. So yes, the power of sanctification has to do with us turning of our own volitional will, but it starts with counting ourselves dead to sin. See, some of you think, oh, I got in the Christian faith by faith, right? It wasn't, it was a free gift. It's nothing, anything I did. But now that I'm a Christian, it's all up to me, right? Now that I'm a Christian, it's up to me to change. Now that I'm a Christian, it's up to my behavior to change. I have to do the change. This is going to sound like a lot of work. No, no, no. Here's how it works. You ready? Step number one. When we put faith in Christ as the substitute for our sin, God reckons our faith as righteousness. Step number two. As we reckon ourselves dead to sin, God infuses into us the power of new life. We become transformed. In other words, let me say it this way. Just as we believe our way into justification, so we believe our way into the power of sanctification. Right? This is justification, salvation. This is sanctification, transformation. That God, in this pursuit, is always infusing new power and life into us by means of faith. You say, well, I've done that, and I don't feel dead to sin. I've counted myself dead to sin. I don't feel resurrection power. I don't feel dead to sin, sin and wrong desires. They feel very alive in me. When I said it, I didn't get tingles on my, on my, hand, on my arms. I didn't let you know, my goosebumps up and down my neck. I didn't get that. Listen, I understand that. But as you continue to believe it, God uses that faith to transform you. Listen to me, church. Believing in the Christian life is the way of releasing power. Power is not released in the Christian life through anything else other than believing. Faith, trust, believing, believing that what God said he did, he did. That he accomplished it. He promised it. He did it. Now, let's, let's look at the example. Abraham, remember chapter 4, Romans chapter 4. He's, he's before he gets to Romans 6. Abraham, uh, at 90 years old, in fact, 99 years old, after a lifetime of infertility, God declared him he would have a son. And not just some random son, not just some random kid. He would father a great nation. Now listen, in Genesis chapter 12, when God said that to Abraham, Abraham never anywhere in the text in Genesis 12 did Abraham say, You know what, God? I have been feeling unusually frisky. I have. Sarah been looking good last few mornings, last few evenings in her gown, so I believe you. No, Romans says, Roman says he believed what God said even when he didn't feel it. Now, you don't need to miss this point. That even when he didn't feel frisky, even when he didn't feel that he could father a nation, he believed what God said. Even though he knew his equipment was way past the expiration date, okay? He knew that it wasn't time, it wasn't the season of life for this to take place. So we will, he, the Bible says in, in Romans chapter 4 that he believed, and listen, he received strength. Woo! He received strength 
to conceive Isaac. He received strength from God. So we will receive strength to walk in righteousness as we believe that God has made us dead to sin like he said he did. Listen, church, this is not some kind of mental trick. Please understand, this is not some of that garbage. I'm not talking about mental gymnastics where you just look in the mirror and say, the power of positive thinking, I'm brave, I'm brave, I'm brave, doggone it, I'm brave, I'm brave, until, until you get brave. It's not like you're looking in the mirror and saying, I'm attractive, I'm a smart, doggone it, people like me, and, and that kind of garbage. No, I'm talking about God actually from heaven gives you actual power when you believe what he says is true. I'm talking about God and his own omnipotence infuses your life with power. Faith, Paul says in Romans 4 is believing that God calls those things that are not as though they were. He calls things that are not into existence. He calls things into existence that don't yet exist like calling an entire nation out of an old infertile man. He called an entire nation. He called an entire really three faiths, the major faiths in the world out of a man who believed what God had said to him. Listen, here's our hang up in the Christian life. Here's our hang up. We always want to feel first and then we want to believe. And God says, no, with the kingdom, you have to believe first and only then will you feel. You don't, you don't feel your way into beliefs. You believe your way into your feelings. If you want your feelings to change, you change your belief. You change what you're, what you're rehearsing. You change what you're saying. You change what you're moving through your mind or meditating on. This is why in the Christian life, power comes through believing. Listen, believing in the righteous idea Identity God has declared over you releases the power to live up to that identity in you. That's transformation. That's what's next. That's what's next. What is it after salvation? Transformation. By the way, this is why Satan began each of his temptations of Jesus in the wilderness in a very odd way. Is, did he? I mean, every temptation of Jesus, the three temptations we see, he starts with this charge. If you really are the Son of God... If you really, that seems odd. If you really are the Son of God, when you think about it, that's an odd way to start a temptation. Why does he start that way? Because if you read the previous chapter, Jesus just got up out of the water, and when he came up out of the water, the voice of heaven spoke, the Father, and he said, This is my Son with whom I'm well pleased. So catch this. Before Satan brings out the pride of life on Jesus, before he brings out a hungering body on Jesus, before he brings out the lust of the flesh, he tries to get Jesus to question his identity. He tries to get Jesus to question his identity because if he knows he will question his identity with the Father, he will weaken Jesus at his core. And when you're weakened at your core, you fall into the small guns. So before he brings any of the temptations in your life towards materialism or pride or lust of the flesh, he starts with Jesus' identity. Are you really the beloved Son of God? And listen, church, that's a pattern for how he tempts us. Imagine you sitting down with me for a little pastoral counseling real quick. Let me tell you how Satan's going to move every single time in your life. He's Satan will do whatever he can to take your eyes off of the new identity that God has given you. That's his number one objective. I want to get your eyes off of the identity that God has given you. So before he brings out the small guns like pornography, the small guns like alcoholism, the small guns like suicide, the small guns like porno, the small guns like sex, he's going to bring out the big gun of are you who God says you are? That's the big gun. And when you are shaken at the big gun, you fall into every other type of sin. He's trying to get you to get your eyes off of the identity God has given you. 
And here's what will happen. He'll start bringing up past sins. He'll start bringing up present sins. He'll start bringing up past things in your life that are true. By the way, they're true. He'll whisper it. By the way, everything he'll say is true. Oh, look how you messed up that relationship. Oh, you just did a horrible mark in that relationship. You really think you're a beloved son or daughter of God? <laughs> Woo, you hadn't even been out of corporate worship in 24 hours. You're looking at the computer already. Woo, you're something, baby. You're something. It ain't been, it ain't been three days, and you're already cussing out your, your co-worker? Some transformation phase you're in and growth phases. Man, that seems to be doing really good for you. Seems to be, oh, one day you might be transformed. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. But, but maybe, you sure God could love you in this kind of defeated Christian state like this? You sure he could? You sure he really cares about you? He'll dangle. Maybe out in the future you'll be transformed. But right now, nah, you need to do some more things to get God to love you. You need to try a little bit harder to get rid of that sin. Hey, you need to try a little bit harder. You need to try. You need to, you need to move in the power of the flesh a little bit more. You need to use the strength of your own legs to try to receive the transformation that only could come ultimately by faith in what Jesus has already said about you. And so Satan, his begin, he begins to slander. He begins to move in a place where he, he accuses the brethren time and time again and as you believe that then what happens is the moment you start believing that he already has you because you've taken your eyes off of what God has done in you and you've put your eyes on what you can do yourself you're done you're retired for the day you finished that moment You've looked at you rather than what God said he would do. Listen, the power of the Christian life begins by believing what God has declared even though it feels impossible. It felt impossible to Abraham. Even though it feels impossible to defeat that habitual sin that's been there for 10 years. Even though it's deep-rooted in the deepest parts of your soul. I believe it even when it seems impossible that I am fully righteous in his sight. That God, by the faith that I have in him, has declared me to be righteous in his sight. That I am dead to sin and I have the power of the resurrection inside of me. And as I believe that, he releases the power of new life in me. You say, Craig, but I don't have a righteous record. You don't know me. You can't call me righteous. That's not what God bases his declaration on. He doesn't base his declaration on whether or not you have sinned or not sinned. He has declared it over you on the basis of the finished work of Jesus. And what God has done in Jesus in his perfect resume, when I put faith in what he's accomplished, he declares it over my life. I was a student minister for more than 10 years. Praise God. I, I, felt, like, I felt like the greatest illustration came from a, a middle school girl when I was sitting in a connect group one day or a small group. We called them small groups. And I'm sitting there in a small group and, and we're talking about the voice. Remember when the voice came out and the voice is kind of like this show where the blind auditions and you got the three people or four people up front and they're, they're not looking at the voice, the, the person on stage. And at any moment that they like that voice, they'll hit the button. They'll turn around and say, I got you. I choose you. You be on my team. I never forget we were talking about the voice in the middle of this middle school small group and there's a young girl said you know what she said uh the gospel's a lot like the voice I'm like what in the, what are you talking about and she said it's like god spun his chair around and says i want you before you even started singing i thought dear god that's really really good that is exactly what the gospel is 
that God did hit his button. God did not wait to hear how good or bad your voice was. God did not wait to hear how good you were going to sing or how bad you were going to sing. He didn't think, oh, they have potential. I can use them on my team. He didn't think, oh, they got a little bit of self-righteousness. I think I might use them. No, he hit the button. He turned around and said, I choose you. I love you. I have picked you. And you say, I have a terrible voice. He said, I don't care if you got a terrible voice. I'm not asking you to use your voice. I'm asking to transform you. And I won't use your power to do it. I'll use my power to do it. And I don't know if you know my power. I don't need your talents. I don't need your past. My declaration got Jesus out of the grave and my declaration will transform your life. So it's belief in God's declaration. Do I believe what God has said is really true? Do I believe what God has done is, is he really done? It's faith. It's trust. It's belief. So he said the first Commandment is to reckon yourselves dead to sin. Now, here's second commandment. I only got two commandments because that's all Paul has. In fact, this whole chapter is around these two commandments. So number one, reckon yourself dead to sin. Here's number two. Verse 12, we get the second. He says, let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments of righteousness. Here it is, but present. Present is your one word command. So reckon, present, reckon, present, reckon, present. He says, present what yourselves to God as those who have been brought, here it is, from death to life and your members to God as instruments of righteousness. Instruments of righteousness. Why? Look what he says in verse 14. For sin will not control you. It cannot control you. Sin will not control you or sin will not rule over you. Why? Because you are not under the law, but you are under grace. Listen to me. Sin cannot rule over you, believer. Sin cannot, has not the power to rule over you because when you receive received Christ, Jesus took the place of the center of your life, the center of your heart. Thus, sin can no longer hold you captive. By the way, it used to hold you captive. He said in Romans chapter 1, you could not, you could not sin. You, you, you could no more stop sinning than a person who is grasping and dying under the water could refuse a breath of air when you pulled them up at the last second. You had to sin when you were born into this world. Romans chapter 1 says you had to sin. means we couldn't stop sinning, but that's not true anymore, Paul says, because Jesus rules at the center of your heart. Jesus rules and the power of resurrection is there. Now look at verse 6. But don't you know, and this is so powerful, but don't you know, look what he says, verse 6, that if you offer yourselves to someone as obedient slaves, verse 6, look, look what he says, or verse 16, I'm sorry, but don't you know that if you offer yourselves to someone as obedient slaves, you are, in other words, you become slaves of the one you obey, either of sin leading to death or, 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 or obedience leading to righteousness. In other words, what is he saying? He's saying that even though sin can't rule over you anymore, it can still invade and harass parts of your heart. That even though as a believer it can't control me anymore, it is always trying to incrementally and slowly gain control of me again. <laughs> Do you remember when sin controlled you? Oh, what a miserable existence. And that's all that sin's still trying to do. Using the lust of the flesh, the pride of life, lust of the eyes. It's trying to incrementally and slowly regain control of your life. To harass your heart. Sin is still present. I think of it like this. 
When the Allied forces took over and took control of Berlin in World War II, you history buffs, you remember the, the power of the Axis countries was broken. The Nazi regime was gone. The Nazi war machine was done. They were out of ammunition. In Berlin, the Nazis were done. But you know what? In the midst of that war, even though that had happened, there were still pockets of German soldiers that were out in the countryside. And even though the axis of power had been broken, and even though Nazism was not on the throne anymore, all of these German soldiers still harassed people. They still found people and tried to shoot people and they tried to kill people and persecute people and they're terrorizing the citizens but the Nazi regime wasn't even in power anymore it had been broken the war was over Paul says the reality is the same of the Christian now Christ has broken the sins control over you and he sets on the throne of your heart the war machine is broken but you know what out in the margins of your life out in the margins of the countryside out in the margins of your soul what happens is the remaining sin not the reigning sin, but the residing sin, the residual sin is still trying to harass you. It's still trying to mock you. It's still trying to overtake you. It's still trying to slow and methodically overgain and regain control of your life. Now, now notice, you've got to understand sin is a captor. Sin is a predator. Sin is a predator. Sin is always working for dominance. Sin wants to gain control. Some of you think you can harmlessly play around with it. Like, ah, oh, it's no big deal. It's just a compromise. It's just a little compromise in this way. Go along with sin. Oh, I can compromise here. It's not very big. Oh, it's not really affecting me. That's just a little bit of a compromise. It won't affect me long. Okay, it's not a big deal. Can I tell you that baby sins become adult sins pretty quickly? And the more that you feed them, that adult sin will bite you. That adult sin will destroy you. That adult sin will take you to the pit. Sin is a predator, and it's working for mastery. It reminds me of those stories you read on the news. Like I read one this last week. Headline, Florida man mauled by pet cougar. And I'm like, well, that sounds pretty interesting. Okay, so let's read that. And the Florida man who we find out in this story, this Florida man has a pet cougar named Fluffy. And Fluffy all of a sudden turns on him and rips his face off. And every time, each one of these stories, they're all the same. Oh, no one saw it coming, the reporter saw. He never showed or exhibited behavior like this before. We can't believe he ripped the face off of his owner. Why in the world would he rip the face off of his owner? And I'm like, okay, number one, cats can never be trusted, okay? The devil's a roaring lion. That's number one. Okay, number two, you've got to understand something. And this is a clear understanding, that he is a predator, You can try to domesticate the wrong nature, but the wrong nature will rip your face off. You can act like the sin can coexist with you nice and neatly and compromise in your life. You can act like it all day, but I'm going to tell you one day, all these little compromised sins, all they are is baby cougars that will one day grow up and rip your face off metaphorically. They will eat you alive. And there's no need in those moments to be surprised. Because sin is working for one desire to master you. It wants to overtake you. It wants to terroristically torture you and bring you down. You entertain sin and you're courting courting disaster. Nobody wakes up today and says, today is the day I'm going to ruin my life. Here it is. Here it is. I'm going to throw away my marriage. Here it is. Start an addiction. 8 o'clock a.m. It's time to start the addiction. I'm going to begin lying to everyone I know today. Today is the day I get pregnant before marriage. Yep, I know it's coming tonight. Here we go. 
By the way, I think with our whole political agenda today, we probably should go Old Testament with our language as Christians and start saying that women are with child instead of pregnant because pregnant speaks to some area of ambiguity. But if you say with child, they can't deny it. It's with child. The scripture says she's with child. She's with child. She's with child. She's with child. No matter if that's one day old or nine months old, she's with child. But no one ever, no one ever, ever wakes up and thinks, this is the day I'm going to do it. No, sin starts slowly, incrementally, subtly, small areas of compromise, but it's always on the move. That's why John Owen said, you must be killing sin or sin will be killing you. You've got to kill sin or sin kills you. It's kill or be killed battles. You can't be neutral with sin. Now, I want to press in here of what Paul means when he says we're obedient as slaves. Now, before I do that, I understand many of you are going to have a hard time with that. So let me, let me teach you something real quick because you're going to go home and think, well, that's weird. Okay, before we explore what it means to be under or be a slave to members of righteousness or slave to sin, let me add here. I know this is a difficult analogy because when you think of the injustice of slavery in our country, I understand that. A couple of things here. The, the slavery Paul's referring to here is what we would call indentured servanthood. It's not, it's not a great economic system. I'm not trying to pretend it's a great economic system, but it's not the injustice of kidnapping and forced labor along ethnic lines. That's not what he's talking about. In fact, Paul makes very clear in places like 1 Timothy chapter 1 that that kind of slavery is categorically wrong. Paul said they've been set free. Second, Paul is just using this as an analogy, not endorsing a particular economic system. Look with me at verse 19 real quick. Look what he says, because this is really important. He says, I'm using a human analogy because of the weakness of your flesh. So that's the only reason I'm using. I'm not endorsing it. I'm not endorsing slavery. He said, I'm using a human analogy because you're, you, you have a weakness in flesh and you're unable to understand. So the Apostle Paul says, listen, look, look at now our verse again, verse 16. But don't you know that if you offer yourselves to someone as obedient slaves, you become slaves of that one you obey? Because you say, some of you say, well, listen, on I sin, I'm only doing what I, I want to. It doesn't feel like I'm a slave to anything. I'm just doing what I want to do. I'm not anybody or anyone's slave. I'm just doing what I want to do. Paul would say, oh, no, 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 no. You're not thinking about it deeply enough. Because every choice you make, listen, behind every choice you make is a calculation that if I do this, it will lead me to happiness. Every choice you make is your calculation of if I do this, it's going to lead to my happiness. It's the, it's the principle Paul taught in Romans 1. He said, everybody's a worshiper. Everybody's a worshiper. Everyone on the planet is a worshiper. Everybody at their core is driven by worships. People say, oh, I'm not religious. I don't worship anything. No, no, no. Worship is not, I don't sing songs. Worship is not singing. You know what worship is? Worship very clearly is this. Worship is to attach ultimate value to something. That's what worship is. You're attaching ultimate value to whatever it is in your life. Whether you're religious or not religious, you're attaching value to something. You're attaching ultimate value to something in your life. Something you determine that you have to have to be happy. Something that we feel like without it, life is not worth living. Paul says, whatever that thing is, that controls your behavior. Whatever it is that you feel like you can't go without, that will control your behavior because you'll do whatever you need to do to get or keep that thing. Notice the word that Paul uses is this word offer. Isn't that amazing? He said offer. Isn't that the language of sacrifice? I'm going to offer my body. I'm going to offer my body like a living sacrifice. You become a slave to it. Why? Because you'll do whatever it takes to get that thing and you'll hold on to it. So listen, there's all kinds of different categories we can give for this. I want to use a Christian counselor named David Pallison, P-O-W-L-I-S-O-N. He gives every idolatry, every moment of idolatry in our life. He gives them in four categories. 
I want you to look at these four categories. I think I've placed them before you. A billion different examples. But he says he can group our idols into four basic categories. You with me? Category number one. I want you, as I speak of these, think of which one is you. He said number one is idols of power. The idols of power. Some people love influence. Some people love recognition. Some people love to be seen. They seek those things through money. They seek those things through status because that's how you get it. Here's the second one, the idols of control. Some people want everything to go according to their plan, and they, they want to know that in the future everything will go according to their plan. They don't like uncertainty. They have to have things happen on their terms, according to their timetable. Their kids have to live where they want their kids to live. Their kids have to do what they want their kids to do. Their kids have to be in, in careers in the way that they want their kids to be in careers. They need to to be in control of everything. And if that timetable is thrown off even by a few minutes, they become irritable, they become impatient, they become angry. Idols of control. Number three, idols of approval. These some people, they crave to be accepted. They can't be happy unless other people are happy with them. They, they want people to admire them. They want people to love them. They want people to desire them. They've got to be praised by other people. So criticism is devastating to group number three. Criticism rocks them to their core. The idols of approval people, criticism eats them alive. Lie. It rocks. It gets at their core identity. Not being affirmed by people in the church is devastating to them. Not being affirmed by people in their family is devastating to them. It will eat them alive. Being picked last at anything, not just the kindergarten playground, but at anything is devastating to them. It rocks them at their core. Many times these people, group number three, are cowards. They don't do the right thing not because they don't know what it is. And they don't do the right thing not because... No, they don't even want to do it. They don't do the right thing because they don't want to deal the dis, with the disapproval it would come when they stick to their convictions, so they cave on their convictions. The idol of approval. Here's the fourth idol, the idol of pleasure. Some people long for physical delights. The good life is sensual delights. I don't know if that's sexual pleasure. I don't know if that's a nice house. I don't know if that's a good diet. I don't know if that's the best vacation. I don't know if it's a good food. I don't know if it's a nice car. I don't know if it's creature comforts. But here's what I want you to do, church. Heart check. You ready? I want you to ask yourself, which of these four is your biggest one? Now turn to your neighbor and say, I know what yours is. I know what yours is. Okay, just tell them, I know what yours is. I got yours down pat. All right. By the way, look at these. There's nothing wrong with any of these in and of themselves. Please don't miss this. There is nothing wrong with any of these. What do you mean, Craig? Yeah. It's when those things become central in our life or become ultimate in our life, something we can't live without, something that compels our obedience over what God wants. That's when they become wicked things. We've told you before, here's the definition of false worship. You ready? False worship is when a good thing becomes a bad thing, or excuse me, a God thing, and then in turn becomes a bad thing. False worship was when a good thing becomes a God thing. When something that's good becomes a God, it becomes ultimate and then therefore becomes a bad thing. In fact, Paul uses a very illuminating word to describe the nature of it. Look at verse 12. Some of you saw this a minute ago and you're thinking, is he going to come back to this? Well, I am. All right, here it is. Here's the verse. He said, let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. You know what that word passions means? It's the word epithumia. Thumia just means desire. Epi means grand, huge. In fact, epi literally means it becomes so large that it controls you. So you know what that means? Epi literally means on top of, on top of or above. So epithumia is desire, stacked on desire, stacked on... Is this not America, y'all folks? This is America. It's desire, stacked on desire, stacked on desire, stacked on desire till it's too heavy. It controls your heart and it controls all your behavior. 
It's when the passions are stacked upon each other, they begin to control my life. So you start thinking things like this. Well, uh, if I can't make a certain amount of money, and we all want to make money, it's why we have jobs. That's why the money's not wrong. That's not why the money's not wrong. It's when it becomes epi money. It becomes epithumia. It becomes desire on type of desire. And you think, you know what? Without this level of money, there's no way I can be happy. Without this level of money or level of income, I'm going to live a second-class life. Without this level of income, how would I ever be who God's called me to be? Or, or about this one, I want a family. And if I can't have that, well, life just doesn't even seem like worth living. If I can't have a family, I... I so you're all the time worried about it. You're all the time worried about dating somebody. All the time worried about being resentful. And I gotta have it. I gotta have it. I gotta have it. Or, or maybe I just don't. I don't need to be married. Or I need to be remarried. If I'm not remarried, I, I, and then what happens is it becomes very controlling in your life. Or what about this one? I want to be noticed. Want to be noticed is not wrong by itself. We all want to be noticed. We always want to be approved for what we do. But you know what? Well, I want my coworkers or I want my boss to notice me. I want my husband or my children to recognize my value. I want them to speak more about my value and I want to commend me. And if not, I'm going to nurse resentment towards them. And if not, and I don't get it, I'm going to nurse bitterness towards them. If not, I'm going to nurse kind of resentment towards that whole sect of people. Or how about this one? I really want a boyfriend. I really, really want a boyfriend. Or oh, I really, really want a girlfriend. And I'd be willing to compliment compromise all kinds of standards just to have someone with me. I'm willing to compromise any kind of standard it is because I'm longing for that relationship. I'm longing for that boy in my life. I'm longing for that girl. Or, or how about this one? I want to be well again. I just want my body to feel good. That's a, that's a good desire. That's a, a healing desire. You know what? But, but with that, if we, if, if we want just our body to feel good and don't know the, the, the nature of God and the nature of healing and the nature of his goodness and blessings regardless of what our body's doing and decaying away, then what happens is we get depressed because we don't get the healing we get angry at God because we don't get the healing and we find a place where it becomes an epithumia. And again, there's nothing wrong with any of these things. It's when they become your masters, they lead you to death. There's three surefire tests to show you what your spiritual masters are. These are the first, if I could say it this way, tremors of spiritual death in you. Epi-anger. Now, epi is not a real word. Epi-anger, but I'm going to say it's epi-anger. It means large anger. Think about this. When something blocks you getting a good thing, you get upset. That's normal and fine. But if something blocks you get from getting an ultimate thing, you get epi-anger. You snap. You rage. Somebody messes up your plan. Somebody gets in the way of that which you desire. You rage. What about this one? Epi-worry. If something good in your life is threatened, you get worried. If I find out my kids are in danger right now, I would get worried. God wants me to get worried. In that sense, right? It's, it's worrisome to me. Like, I love them. I care for them. But listen, if something ultimate in your life is threatened, you are paralyzed. It's become what I call epi-fear, epi-worry. You grieve and you weep, and that's not normal. You can't think right. I'm not trying to diagnose any mental issue here, by the way. I'll make that really clear in just a moment. There's a lot of psychological issues, even physical issues. But I'm going to just tell you that the core of a lot of what we receive is coming from this epithemia, this passions, these desires that are unmet. Or what about this one, the epi-sadness? If you lose something good in your life, you grieve and weep. That's normal. But if you lose something ultimate, you despair, you fall apart, you feel like life is not worth living, it's epi-sad. Those three emotions point to the places where something has misplaced God as the master of your heart. The master of your heart. So here we go. What ends up provoking these three emotions in you? Number one, what makes you most angriest? What makes you the angriest? Number two, what makes you worry the most? 
What makes you worry the most? Number three, what has caused you a most sadness, a deep grief? I've told you mine. I'll tell you again. There's no sense in preaching a message like this that's hard of transformation without being honest about my transformation. One of my biggest ones of this is control. And control leads to the one that I have dealt with the most over the last nine months called worry. Because when I can't control what's going on seemingly in moments of my mind, that brings me to a place of utter helplessness. Helplessness. A control. And you know what? Even in the midst of health and me gaining health again, do you know it's a daily, it's not a, it's not a weekly right now, it is a daily, sometimes multiple times a day, struggle of mine to renew my mind with the thoughts that the enemy's throwing in my mind of this is going to happen multiple times in your life. These episodes are going to get stronger. They're going to get worse. They're going to get stronger. They're going to beat you up more. They're going to wear you down until they ultimately take you. It is a daily struggle. Why? Because I feel like I need to be in control. I'm worrying if things aren't after what I desire and how I want them and, and, and the way I've always taken pride in my mind and always taken pride in the ability to think and, and be strong in my mental aptitude, I begin to hold on and begins to control my emotion. Like what's going to happen in the future? It becomes this irrational fears. Why? Because it is a master. And Paul says, yeah, of course you got it, Craig. Everybody has somebody. Everybody's serving something. Nobody's not serving something. Everybody, everybody in the room's got something. And you got to serve somebody. You got to serve somebody. That sounds like Bob Dylan, right? Um, or maybe it was Paul or Bob Dylan getting it from Paul. But you got to serve somebody. We all have one. So look what he says, verse 16. If you present yourself to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin which leads to death or obedience, which leads to righteousness. You know what I want to say to us, church? He's not saying death like hell. That's ultimate death. Listen to me. Every master besides God leads to death. Every master besides God leads to death. If you are enslaved to approval, I'm not talking about spiritual death. I'm talking about this type of death. Your life will be plagued by constant self-pity, constant envy, constant hurt feelings, constant feelings of inadequacy. And like I said, you're going to be a coward, not willing to do the right thing because it's going to get disapproval from the people around you. If you're enslaved to pleasures, you won't be able to say no to pornography. You won't be able to say no to the pleasures of food. You won't be able to say no to sex. In fact, you might become addicted to those things. Whatever it is, you won't be able to say no to shopping. Whatever pleasure it is. If you're enslaved to power, you become domineering. You become vengeful. You become self-promoting. You can't stop it. You become harsh. You become abusive. You even uh, become abusive of other people. If you're enslaved to control, you'll worry all the time. You'll worry consistently. You'll worry obsessively. You'll lose your temper a lot. People around you will feel manipulated like you're using them for your purposes, which you are. Now listen to me. I understand I'm dealing with some very complex emotional stuff. There's many factors. There's many trauma. There's a lot going on here. I'm not trying to give you a diagnosis, but what I'm trying to tell you is that these epithumias are at the basis of what controls our behavior. He goes on in verse 23, he said, For the wages of sin is death. Pause. We always use this verse in salvation. That's not what Paul's saying here. That's not what he's talking about. We always use it as in a nice little short explanation of salvation, which it is. But in this context, it's a description of what happens in our lives when we allow sin to gain dominance. We start to experience death. Here we go. In Romans, death and life are not options for the afterlife. They're conditions you experience now. 
In Romans, death and life are now conditions, not just afterlife conditions. It's conditions you experience now, even as a believer. Are you going to continue to give yourself over to death? Or over to life. And the more you allow sin to control your life, the more you'll experience a kind of what I call a living death. First and foremost, you'll never be satisfied, church. You'll never be satisfied. You'll never be satisfied. I don't know if any of you have ever done this before. My family grew up in the backwoods of Tennessee. So when we went to Daytona Beach, or we went to Panama City Beach, PCB! When I was growing up, we went to the dog races. I don't know if you've ever been to the dog races. Anybody been to the dog races in here? I love me some dog races. You're, you're Florida native, okay? Three of us going to dog races in here. I was like 10 years old, let my dad go up and bet for me, right? You bet on these dogs. These dogs, these greyhounds, they walk out. I'm always picking the one who took the last large droppings, okay? Because I knew he was going to be lattice, lattice, or lightest, right? So they'd come out, and I'd be watching them, seeing any of them that are going to use number two in the grass. And I'd pick the one that released the biggest. And I'm like, I'm picking him, right? And he would go get in the pen. And what happens in the dog races, it's amazing. You get these dog race, these dogs that are back behind the kennel. And they're ready to go, right? And, and it's amazing. You do all these different kind of and, and all of a sudden, uh, when, you're, when these dogs are behind this deal, the race starts, they, they bring this fake rabbit out. And the fake rabbit is on this little arm, and, 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 and his name is Rusty. And the announcer goes, here's Rusty. And the dogs, and they're getting pumped, right? Here's Rusty. I want to show you a quick video of Rusty. I want you to watch him in the bottom left, okay? Watch Rusty real quick. Go ahead and play that video. If you go through the record books, beat last year's winner, kind of ready in the Midland Puppy Derby final last year. That would be a twist of fate as well. Charlie Lisson looking for his fifth derby. The crowd getting ready. John Forster waves the flag for the final derby. Here comes officiating on. The hair is going round for the William Hill.com derby final for 2010. The famous in trap five, Tumaline Jack, hoping to keep his unbeaten record. Now, what's so amazing about this, you've never seen this before, Rusty at the end, I can't even see where Rusty goes. He just kind of disappears. Now, I just thought about it sometimes. What about those dogs in that kennel that night? And one of them's like, man, I almost had Rusty today. Dude, I almost had him. If, and the other one's like, man, if he comes back, you think he's going to come back out tomorrow? You think Rusty's going to come back tomorrow? I, I'm going to get Rusty tomorrow, right? And they wake up the next morning, and they're thinking, you know what? I'm going to get Rusty again. And sure enough, the next morning, they get out there. He's back, and they chase him around and around. And we think, gosh, what a dumb dog. What a stupid dog. They'll never get the alarm clock. Or, or, or the, you know, they'll, never, they'll never get this, you know, this rabbit or this hare or this Rusty that's going around the, the, the uh, track. And yet, in that moment, if we're not so fast, every morning when we wake up, it's almost like it's saying, here's Rusty.
generosity. And the most sad thing is we stand up and think, you know what? I'm going to get that promotion. Today's the day. I'm going to find that man. Today's the day. I'm going to find that woman. And we put in our hearts this epithemia, this desire, and, and things are going to be awesome. And I want to tell you, you're never going to get rusty, but you're going to get back up and try again tomorrow. And this is America. We get back up and chase rusty the next day. And we get back up the next day and chase rusty again. And here's what's crazy. They say sometimes out of a mechanical failure, the mechanical hair will stop and one of the dogs will get it and he'll rip into it and he'll realize, oh my, this is not a rabbit. And they say from that point forward, they can never get that greyhound to race again. He loses all motivation. Woo, you finally got that job. I'm the assistant manager to the boss. And you realize it wasn't what you thought it was. You got that relationship and you realize, oh, it wasn't what I thought it was. Oh, oh, I got what the world said that I should need. And all of a sudden I tear into it and it has no substance. It's, it's not what I thought it ever was. I've been duped. And if that ever happens, the dog loses all motivation. That's where some of us are, man. We are dumber than dogs. Sin makes us dumber than dogs. That, uh, it, it, you caught Rusty. You got the car. You moved into the house. You got the corner office. You're like, you see that? But yet you're, you're dumber than the greyhound. Sin's made us that way. And we say, you know what? But the next one, I will. I'll get it. And he says in verse 21, So what fruit was produced then from the things you're now ashamed of? Wow, what a text. What fruit? The outcome of other things is, is death. Come on, Jesse. Paul says, where has that led you? And why do you keep going back there? He ends verse 23, he says, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Paul said, there's another master church. And this master actually gives you life. He's what your soul's always been looking for and craving. And the best part, he doesn't require you to work to get it. He gives you his acceptance, his security, his joy as a gift to you. You see, listen to me, every other master besides God threatens you. If you don't work enough for me, I'm going to make you miserable. I'm going to curse you. If you work hard, you'll get me and you'll be happy. Money says, oh, fail to obtain me. Work hard and get me. I'll bless your life. But you fail to obtain me and you're going to be poor and cursed. If you don't work hard enough or you're not smart enough, I'm going to curse you. That's what money says. You know what romance says? Relationships say, hey, if you don't find the right person, you're going to be miserable. You don't, if you're not pretty enough, if you're not skinny enough, if you don't drive the right kind of car, I'm going to make you lonely. I'm going to curse you. I'm going to make you miserable. But God says, I give you my joy and my blessing as a gift. You don't have to earn it. Mine's not a wage. Mine is a gift. It's free. And that is eternal life. And the eternal life that Paul talks about in verse 23 is not just eternal life in heaven. It's eternal life now because Jesus is so much better than any other master you can give yourself to. He's so much better than any master that we can conjure up. God's more secure than money. He promises to supply all your needs according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus and his stock never crashes and it never dips below 10,000. Let me tell you, God is more fulfilling than any romantic love. Listen to me, young sister. The arms, the tender arms you want at night are the arms of your heavenly father that will wrap you around you and will say, you know what? You are my beloved daughter and I love you with an everlasting love. Knowing God is better than earthly power. What greater power than there could be than to know the sovereign God who literally controls every molecule has come and 
endeared all of them for my good. Let me tell you, God's better than physical health. God's better than even wellness because he offers abundant life no matter the circumstances and eternal life can never be taken away. Let me tell you, church, God is better than achievement. I promise you, when you see the one whose eyes are like fire and you see the the, the hair and the bronze and feet and he says, well done, good and faithful servant from Jesus will be better than any 10,000 trophies that you've received that we forget about even after the day of the championship is gone. To actually hear Jesus say to you, well done, good and faithful servant. What are you saying, Craig? I'm saying everything we compare God to, he wins. He wins. Another way I could say this is Jesus is the only master who if you find him will satisfy you and if you fail him will forgive you. He'll forgive you. So in conclusion, two ways. Reckon, count. Reckon, present. Reckon, present. You want to be changed? What happens next? Reckon, present. Reckon yourselves dead to sin. That means embrace the identity. Believe it even when we don't feel like it. Believer, you are, you are a believer that's cherished. You are redeemed. You are sanctified. All the promises of God are yes and amen in Christ. And when sin comes back for you and says, this is who you are. This is what you do. This is what you're good for. You say, no, I'm a beloved son or daughter of the risen king. I'm not under your jurisdiction of death anymore. I'm not bound to, to obey you sinful desire anymore. I know who I am. Resurrection is my future. I'm not the person who I used to be. And when you do that, it'll lose its power over you. I'm not saying I'm to do it one time. I'm talking about doing it every day. And you'll find over a period of time it will lose its power. Me and my family, we go camping quite a bit. The place we camped all the time growing up was a place called Chester Frost Park. And we'd go down there. And y'all know how you get around these Canadian geese. And these Canadian geese, they pretend like they own the place. You ever been around these jokers? And 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 it's normally live and live and let live, right? We're good. I'm out there with my kids one day. We're taking bread. All is happy. I'm throwing out this bread to these geese. All of a sudden, one of them geese, one of those gooses, got a little, got a little aggressive. You ever seen this before? These can't, and they're, nah, nah, nah. and he started putting out his his wings like this. And before I did, me and my kids, by instinct, we were like, ah, and we started, y'all. I took about four steps, and I realized, oh, I forgot who he was, and I forgot who I was. I've never read a report that goose mauls kids or or dad and four kids and they're dead. You know, like I've never seen that before. This thing don't got fangs. This thing can't hurt me. And so I went over there and I started kicking that goose, right? I'm just kidding. I didn't kick it. Well, I didn't kick it that far, okay? Um, No, I didn't really kick it, but I thought, you know what? This is a goose and I'm a man. Listen, when you understand that you are dead to sin, when sin comes and and puts out its wings like this and says, oh, you owe me, you owe me, you'll say, no, I don't. I'm not under the jurisdiction of you anymore. I'm a saint of God. I'm a child of God. I'm a man of God. I'm a daughter of God. I I don't have to obey you anymore. I don't have to submit to you anymore. And when you do, it will lose its power. The power will be snapped, snapped, because he'll infuse new life into you. So you got to reckon yourself dead to sin. But then number two, you got to present your members to God. In John 11, Lazarus is called from the dead. And Jesus says, take those grave clothes off of him. Woo, what a peculiar statement. Why? Because living people don't wear dead man things. Living people don't wear the garments of your past. Unwrap them. Take them off. Present your members, the body, 
for members of righteousness. That's what some of you need to do now. Thank you so much for listening to this week's message. If you would like more information about our church, be sure to visit us on the web at dwellingplacemovement.org.